everybody. Welcome to the Book Leads Impactful Books for Life and Leadership. I'm your series host and leadership performance coach, John Jermillo. In this podcast series, I try to get to the books that have impacted the lives of people in my network, friends that I've had, new colleagues, people I've never even talked to, but have connected with through social media and LinkedIn. So I consider these great leads on books that um, that are on books that have impacted their life, their work, their leadership, and really made a difference in how they operate, whether they're the writer or of the book or not. So for this particular series, I cover three categories of books, books that I haven't read that they're schooling me on, books that we've both read, and then the final category where they're the actual author of the book. So for this particular episode, I'm going to have the author of the book, and my guest will be Dr. Bridget Cooper. And a little more about Dr. Cooper. She's a cage rattler, a change strategist, a thought shifter. She's a best-selling author of six books on communication, conflict, change, and empowerment. And her latest, Pain Rebel, offers us a roadmap out of being buried by pain with no purpose and into empowerment and abundance. Her ambitious mission is to change the world one hopeful life at a time. Born onto the welfare system and raised by wolves, she's made her own success one broken fingernail at a time. She knows heartache and hopelessness, and she also knows the power of the mind, spirit, and spirit to carry you upward. Bottom line, Dr. B sculpts the leader in all of us by making us better people first. I love that. Mm -hmm. And her clients run the gamut from the Girl Scouts to Vietnam vets, from universities to jails, from insurance companies to massage therapists. Her secret mission is to bring all of these groups together someday and see what fun transpires. I love it. and. <laughs> Um, I love that you're game for anything. Absolutely. I, re I reached out to invite you on to this conversation. Yeah. Uh, you know, some of my previous guests and even though we were connected for a few years, yeah, cause you know, you see people comment on, on mutual connections. You're like, all right, this person has some great insights. You connect. We never really had a conversation. No, never have <laughs> never had a conversation. This is the first time we're talking face to face, albeit virtual. Uh, so Dr. B, thank you so much for joining me, taking that chance with somebody you don't even know and um, thank you. Ha having this conversation. No, I so, appreciate all the work you're doing. So thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. So I read your bio. I love everything about it. I love the cage rattler. I love that you're <laughs> game for, I can't say that enough, but why don't you tell me a little more um, and the audience a little more about the work that you're doing? How would you describe the different pieces and components of what you do in your career today? Yeah, it's interesting. Over time, um, my work has diversified in different ways. And you know, the, the streams of income and business and, you know, the work that needs to be done change every year. You know, some years it's weighted this way, some years it's weighted that way. But the composite of my business is I do a lot of um, work with companies and individuals within companies on helping them to work better together, work better toward their successful initiatives, you know, figure out a goal strategy, doing a lot of strategic planning retreats. And also I get called in to do a lot of personal and professional development workshops that run the gamut from, as it said in my bio, you know, communication and conflict to, you know, mental health, which is a, a huge issue that's been coming up the last couple of years in trying to manage the stress and fear that people have just getting up and going to work or just getting up 
and uh, and helping people figure out how to modulate that those behavior things, those you know mental struggles to be able to work most effectively. Um, I've done keynotes for years, although that's been kind of quiet for the last couple of years, as one can imagine. Um, and and I I'm an accidental author. You know, I did not set out to become. When people talk to me about being an author. I say, oh, oh, yeah. Well, I've yeah, I've written half a dozen books. I, I guess I'm an author. I, I I don't identify that way primarily because um, the way I came into it was was somewhat accidental. The only in- book I intended to ever write, you know, long term, was my fifth book. I mean, it took me five books to get to the one that the only one that I ever intended to write. So it's been and a- which one was that? The and that was the landslides. Okay, okay. Because it's so my can- it's my story. Yeah. Can you just run through the the books, um, like the titles, <laughs> not sure. not not diving into the books, but yeah. just like the titles and, and what each is about? Yeah. So, and I'll, I'll give a little, um, you know, a couple sentence story on each one. So, the sure. first one was feed the need, and it talks about you know how we understand conflict, where it comes from, both internal, you know, interpersonal and intrapersonal conflict, where it comes from, and how to solve it. And that really emanated from saying, you know, I've been doing more workshops, I've been doing more keynotes, and it makes sense to have a book to kind of to to show what it is that my theory is or my, you know, some of my tidbits, you know, where's where's this wealth of knowledge that I've been giving to clients for all these years? How can I put it into one particular place and make it a package? So that's where Feed the Need came from. And then I started working on the what ended up being the third book, which is called Stuck You. Uh, which is yes. And I did mean it that way. Um, and, uh, and, like you know, that. but it's, it's, there's a period after the U, so it's like stuck university, but it's a subtle period. And really it talks about the change process because I've been doing a lot of work with cor- corporations and individuals on change and con- cultural change. And it was important for me to map out what the change process actually looks like so that people could really, um, follow that as a guide. But, in, what intervened was I was talking to a, a group on Feed the Need, and this young woman was in attendance kind of supporting the event, and she said, uh, came up to me after it and said, hey, you know, you uh, you changed my life tonight. And I said, whoa, I usually, that takes me like three hours. I, I was surprised I did that in 90 minutes, you know. She said, I said, how did I do that? You're going to tell me more. And she said, there's been a girl who's been bullying me at school, and you gave me the tools I need to go face her tomorrow. And I said, wow, that's like, that's powerful. And she asked, do you have this in teen edition? <laughs> I said, oh my God, you are brilliant. I never thought of that. And I don't know why I didn't think of it, John, because frankly, if I had had Feed the Need as a teen, I would have, well, I, you know, I would have avoided a bad marriage and, you know, probably a hundred other, you know, poor decisions and, you know, hiccups in my life. And I thought, wow, this really does need to be written for teens. So I went back and in the midst of writing Stuck You, I stopped and I uh, edited uh, the first Feed the Need and made it Feed the Need Teen Edition. She wrote the intro and, you know, she ended that up- That student? Yeah, that student ended Very up writing cool. the, yeah, the foreword and uh, Kate Adriani, amazing young woman, and she was a senior in high school, so she put it in with her college applications. We printed it in time for her to be able to do that. And I ended How up- How fancy is that for her as a college- Right? Published author <laughs> a as Published a senior, author, right? yeah, yeah. And what, you know, and it brought tears to my eyes because I received her, um, her you know, intro when, uh, you know, over the holidays, and she's dyslexic. 
So here's this young woman with a learning disability that she's had to overcome with a, you know, a bullying history and, and, and the trials and tribulations that so many of us have been through in our young life. And she's a published author just because she made an observation and she asked a question. That was it. That was all that took to change the trajectory of her life. And so, you know, she ended up being running a television studio at her, uh, her undergrad and a radio station. Like she came out of her shell in ways that I don't know that had she not taken those risks, she would have done. Right. That's all. Well, the crazy thing is I love that story. Yeah. Me and, too. um, it was just funny how you talk about in your career, how you, how things shift, how things change, how it evolves, yeah. this and that. And in my own career, I've kind of gone like, um, not downstream, like it's any less, but gravitating towards students, doing more and more yeah. work with students and not quite to that level what she uh, shared with you, but I've had students come up and just state their aha moments. Yeah. Things where they heard something, they heard a theme for the first time mm -hmm. or they heard a theme they've heard before, but in your words, the way right. that you put it, the way you convey it. And it's just amazing how many of these books that we have, you know, for adults, yep. um, if we put them out like for teen, in mm -hmm. teen versions for them, yeah. um, you're still going to go through the same trials and tribulations. It's not going to solve all their problems, but they could find some kind of a beacon, some kind of a light. Right. To They're going to be say, better equipped. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They're going to have more tools in their toolkit. And I, you know, they, there's, there's brain science behind that because, um, you know, up until the age of eight, you, you create, so there are pathways in the brain that create thought patterns that allow you to make choices or have kind of those shortcuts where you're not even thinking about what you're doing. You're just making an assumption or you're, you know, jumping to a conclusion or just taking an action without really considering what your, what the premise behind that is. Mm -hmm. And those, those pathways, those neural pathways are at their highest production before the age of eight. So most of our internal programming happens by the age of eight. Not that we're, you know, a done deal at that point, but that's a, that's a big, that's a it's big a foundation. You know, platform. It's a huge Ex foundation. Exactly. And then the next time in our lives, when that production, that, that myelin sheath that goes around these, it's like a, it's like a superconductor for those thought processes that we have. That next period of time that that happens is during our teens. So you can imagine, you know, up until the age of eight, you're having all these formative experiences and creating all these neural pathways that are leading to assumptions and behaviors and, and feelings and thoughts about the world and you and your place in it. And then the next time is the chaos of the teen years, right? So yeah. you're making all sorts of, you know, bringing all sorts of conclusions to bear and, and thinking all these things. And that's trying to undo all of those things is the work that you and I and all of our, you know, colleagues and, and, you know, cohorts are doing in our adult years is trying to unravel some of that mess. Because, well, I mean, yeah. go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, because we created those things without having a lot of the framework and tools and support and insights that would have allowed us to make different pathways happen. So now we got to go back when we're not having that, you know, superconductor experience and try to undo that work. So what could, what would be possible if we could help our young people create those pathways in a much more productive and self-supporting, sustaining way? Well, I, the reason this series came about was just my, my curiosity about conversation. I was always curious about conversations, but even more mm -hmm. so during the pandemic is people were coming out of their shells more. 
Oh, absolutely. And, and as they were sharing more, because you're, you're, most of it is, is virtual, right? During the right. pandemic, the majority of our contact was like this or networking events or forums mm -hmm. or speakers, whatever it may be. But it's like when you're in your environment, you're at home, you feel more comfortable. If you're with yeah. the right facilitator in the right group, you mm -hmm. feel more comfortable. So people are just sharing more and more. And yeah. even some conversations I've had on here, um, thoughts of, of insecurity have come up as adults and we can all trace that cord back to a particular moment or a particular instance when Correct. we were in those formidable years right that kind of programmed us for the rest of our lives yeah so yeah and i talk about it in pain rubble which we'll get to in a minute but i talk about it in pain rubble as being the contracts we signed before we had the ability to really consider whether or not that <laughs> contract was a good yeah. idea or not right do i want to yeah. believe this limiting negative belief about myself or the world? Do I want to go into certain situations and believe that that's the only way to make that happen? Of course I don't, but I didn't have the choice back then, the insight, the understanding. So I wasn't able to make that, you know, appropriate decision. And again, so now, it's, 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 it's the wherewithal to say to a student or a young person, mm -hmm. this isn't going to solve all your problems. I'm not saying it is, no. but it's just kind of like, here's some tools Right. Because I'm sure whatever you may have gone through, and I'm mm -hmm. just assuming here, mm -hmm. because it led you to where you are today, yeah, there really isn't too much that you would change. Right. Um, that's a huge assumption. For me, right. um, I was much different before the age of 35, then started working in coaching, and it just evolved who I am. Mm -hmm. Um late bloomer in terms of knowing what I wanted to do. And that led me to be a little quiet and just kind of reserved about everything. But as soon as mm. I realized what I wanted, I started firing on all cylinders, making up for lost time. Right. And even though that started later in life, I wouldn't change that because it made me who I am today. This mm -hmm. conversation wouldn't be happening. Right. Um, things wouldn't be playing out the way they are now. But Absolutely. why, why chance it at that age, you, you'd rather like provide them some tools for, whatever it may be, exploration, right. coping, whatever it may be. Well, like you said, here's the thing, like life is always going to happen. There's no, you know, there's this fallacy that I think a lot of us are, you know, this fallacy of thinking that we're under that somehow if we get good enough, smart enough, creative enough, you know, organized enough, punctual enough, almost perfect, that we'll somehow be insulated by tragedy, mayhem, you know, uh, you know, whatever they, those, those outside forces may be. Absolutely not. Life is still going to hit you. It's a matter of how hard the hit is going to feel and how long you're going to hold on to the damage that it does. Right. And I mean, and, and it's come up here before, but if there's a lot to be said for obstacles, challenges, mm -hmm. um, not having a completely you know, salient, quiet, um, <laughs> right. you know, there's something to be said. There's, we don't want to go through it, but there's something to be said when we get, get to the yeah. other side of those challenges that they kind of refine you or they sharpen your edges or make you yeah. more resilient. I mean, they do. when you're, when you're going through it, it, it can be horrible depending on what it is, but I mean, mm -hmm. people have to look to that other side. They absolutely do. And it's, and it's part of, you know, building that toolkit. I've done a lot of work in, in jails and, you know, I talked, I first pitched this concept in a, in a room with a bunch of inmates of saying, look, this is just one tool to put in your toolkit. The problem is, is if you go out into the woods and all you have is a compass, you're in trouble. You know, you got to have a water bottle. You got to have a compass. You got to have, you know, something to make fire with. You know, you need a number of different things for different circumstances that are going to come up. But you're not going to be able to build those tools, find those tools until you've had the, the trouble of 
showing up someplace and you didn't have them. You're like, next time I'm going to pack that tool because yeah. I was really shorthanded when I got it, there. Your good intentions and your strong heart are only going to get you so far if you don't have the tools. Correct. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. I'm sorry. So, so we so got lost. The, the I, you know, we're just going to do this. We're going to do this yeah, like roundabout yeah. thing. But oh I'll yeah. Quickly, it's I'll it's never a straight line. I'm going to, I'm going to be honest right now. Never. So the next few books. So, um, so third was stuck. You talked talk to you about that. Um, and then came uh, power play, which is another interesting story we could get lost in, but I actually lost the manuscript. I had handwritten most of the oh. manuscript and I left it on a plane on my way to a client. Uh, and so I had to go back. And one of the things is that you, for me, when I write something, once it's written, I, I, I don't rethink it, right? Like mm -hmm. it's already been written. I checked that box. So I covered that area. So to go back and try to rewrite it, oh, it was my least favorite writing experience because initially I was really in and down for it. And I had speaking engagements that were tied to its production. So I needed to get it finished. And I just, oh, but anyway, but Power Play is a book about um, what is going on in, you know, organizational culture and cultures in general, but especially in organizational cultures in terms of, um, you know, patterns of behavior, dynamics that are happening that are creating problems that then have to be solved, whether by, you know, intervention or reorganization, et cetera, et cetera. And how do we, how do we mitigate those things? So it's more toward my corporate audience, but also toward people who are involved in any kind of organization. And then came the fifth book, which is the passion project, which was little landslides, which talks about my upbringing, you know, the, the things that have hit me and that formed those, those pathways for me, you know, those neural pathways and how that experience of repeated repetitive uh, trauma informed who I was and who I became and where I've, I've gone in my life. And then at the end of that kind of, you know, self, um, you know, revelation was, okay, now if this looks like you, what can you do to help resolve some of those traumas in your life and the way that you hung on to those pieces, you know, that are, that are fractured in you. And so that was a, that was a, a big lift, which led to my Ted talk back in uh, TEDx talk back in 2018. What was the, the title of the talk? Uh, the secret to making life hurt less. Oof. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Which I, I thought about uh, titling differently, but when I talked about the actual topic to people, um, people, um, you know, recoiled and I'll tell you, it was the word forgiveness. When I said the word forgiveness, so many people got tight and angry. I actually had several people say to me, if you name it that I will never click on it hmm. because I, anything that has to do with forgiveness, I'm done. I, I don't, I don't want to be told to forgive again. And I, I could, found that compelling. That. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I could see that. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I, I think I'd rather prefer a little chaos than something that's wrapped up or set aside. Like mm. forgiveness is just kind of closure. Right. Um, and I, I don't think, I don't know. I'm programmed that way where I, I was always good at holding grudges, you know, the type <laughs> yep. to say, you know, um, I'll forgive, but I'm not going to forget kind of thing. Right. You know, fool me once, fool me twice, blah, 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 uh -huh. blah. Um, but no, yeah. that's that, I could see why they were saying that about forgiveness. Um, oh, absolutely. Because sometimes I think they just see it as forgiveness means I forgot and there's no accountability to yeah. whoever the aggressor was, or even if it's me, you know, right? Um, that it's just kind of wrapped up too cleanly. But that that's I love the other title as well. 
Yeah. So the, the piece about forgiveness that I found um, was a, a subject that I think we need to dig into more and more, which is why I, I love doing the talk, is I actually talked about what our colloquial understanding of forgiveness is and how that that definition does not serve us because that definition, as you described it, has some sort of permission wrapped up in it. Mm. Like somehow, if I forgive you, I think it's okay that you did what you did. That I somehow have made it, I've sanitized the experience. I've made, I've invalidated my own pain by allowing you off this per proverbial hook, right? And my, and I've, I've joked with clients, they've nicknamed my brand of forgiveness, forgiveness because of B, right? That it's this uh -huh. different brand of forgiveness, which is about letting go of this illusion that you can change an unchangeable past. It's putting down the emotional tie that you have to the act that was committed or the series of acts or the relationship or whatever the piece is that you're trying to forgive and saying, no longer will I allow that dynamic to drive the pattern of my life because frankly, that person, if they are so awful, is not worth that. Mm. That is, they, they do not, they took my, as I said in my TED talk, they took my past. I could not allow them to take my present and my future. So it was, a, it's an act of defiance in a sense that isn't really recognized. You know, when you look at it in a, in a religious sense, it's like, you're just supposed to forgive. Well, you know, for me, I had to bring the rebel out, which was no, absolutely mm. not. I will forgive, but not because you deserve it, but because I deserve the freedom of it. And the second piece of it, which you tied in also, when you talked about, I'll forgive, but I won't forget, is that. Yes, there is a role of that not forgetting. And that's about boundaries. That's about creating intentional space or rules around who gets close to you and under what conditions, if they are safe or unsafe. If they have proven themselves time and time again to be toxic or to you know, violate you in certain ways, you can forgive them. You can bore give them, right? You can let go of that tie. You can break that chain and also say, and you don't get access to me because yeah. I can't trust that you're going to be safe for me. And I think that piece, when I got that piece, all of a sudden I could forgive everyone because yeah. I didn't have to, it didn't, it didn't mean anything and validate me. It didn't do anything to harm me, but boy, it gave me the freedom to not hold on to that anger and rage and judgment that I was using in the place of boundaries to create that artificial distance between me and another person. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I love that. And I think there is, you know, it's this key phrase buzz phrase lately, like toxic positivity is coming up, but I think oh, a lot, a lot of, it. I think a lot of people <laughs> look at forgiveness, like, Oh, it's the right thing to do. Yep. If I forgive, I can't, I can't, yeah, I can't do that person wrong or society right. wrong by being that person that doesn't forget. It's like, F that, like, yes. you know, because Thank you're foregoing you. your own self-respect, your right. own self-care, like whatever, whatever it may be, um, you're giving up, you're giving up too much of yourself. I think if you're trying Absolutely. to go along with doing the noble thing of, right. you know, it, it, whether it's religious or spiritual or whatever mm -hmm. it may be, but you're like, no, forgiveness is what we, what we should be about. I'm like, nah, I don't think so. It's so, it's so hard because that, I think, I feel like a pendulum swings, right? You know, so we go over to this place of, you know, toxic positivity as you talk about, I, I, I can't stand when people are 
talking about things as though you don't get to be mad about something because that's somehow a, a lower vibration, right? Mm. No, no, no. You can use your rage to actually elevate your vibration because rage, and I've said this and I've done some work with um, young women who have been uh, sexually trafficked, right? Mm -hmm. And we talk, and I, I've had to prepare the staff before I come in to say, don't worry, I, I, when I first start talking about rage, you're gonna freak out, but I'm gonna get to a place where you're gonna, you're gonna like what I have to say. Mm -hmm. Because yes. these girls, these young women are, are angry, right? They are, they're really angry and they've been taught that they shouldn't be so angry because this, this outburst is, you know, just, it's not healthy for them. They got to let it go. And what I say is that rage is the most beautiful emotion because what rage is saying is rage is saying, I deserved better, that my soul and my spirit were eviscerated and that was not right. And I am, I am proclaiming at the top of every mountain I can get to that that is not permissible, right? Like that was not okay. And that's what rage is. That's what's informing us about the acts that we take based on the feeling of rage. Those are not cool, right? Yes, yes. Like that's where we have to differentiate between a feeling and an action, right? The yes. feeling of rage is beautiful. The acts that come out of rage are not. And that's where I think in a lot of ways our, our society get gets fractured, right? With yeah. these mass shootings and all of these things that mm. are happening are because we don't allow for the feeling of the rage and the respect that it deserves and the healing that needs to take place as a, as a result. And instead, it just gets channeled into a, an, an action to give it the validation it's been yes. seeking. I love right. that. Yeah. I love that. Because I've always thought like, even in relationships, whether it was mm -hmm. like friendships or romantic, I'm like, I always appreciated the arguments because then you, then you realize where the other person stood. Yes. Absolutely. Because all the time they have maybe this rage, maybe they're unhappy, mm -hmm. whatever it may be, but they're trying to keep the peace because that's what we're supposed to do. Yeah, but I, I, but we're not. We're I, not I swear to do I'm that. not. I swear <laughs> I'm not like a sadist. But when the argument happened, it's like, okay, finally, now I know where yeah. you actually stand because you let a little of that rage out, and right. maybe it's just words, maybe it was some screaming, whatever it may be, no, no violence or anything like that. But right. it's like finally, you just let go of of what you were holding inside. So the pretense. The pretense. So I appreciate yeah. what you're saying. Like rage is beautiful. It's like yeah, because when you get that. It's it's almost like I just picked up Susan Cain's new book on longing, and it, mm. it's funny in that it's similar in that people get the the wrong impression of it. Yeah, whether you're talking about rage, rage or longing, mm -hmm. it's like you're losing sight of the beauty of what's driving that. Like that, Correct. there's something that you're longing for so much, and that's beauty. That there's something that you're raging and pissed right. off about yep. that much. That's beautiful. Like right. you said, it's what we do with that. Like even jealousy, that exactly. you're jealous a, a, about something. It's like, what is that about? Show me right. show me what it is you feel, but the way you act on it, that's what gets us in trouble. Right. What we tend to do also with a lot of emotions is that we put them into or categories. We are either angry or we are mm. pleased. We are either sad or we are happy. No, we can be both. We are both. If we actually look at the complexity of the, of the human brain and experience, we are multiple things on the same topic all the time. And when we don't allow for the complexity, the layers of those emotions, we end up doing ourselves a disservice. And when you talk about the, the idea that, you know, 
something is necessarily bad. Anger is bad. Sadness is bad. No, sadness is good. Staying in sadness and never resolving the thing that's creating the sadness, that's bad. But there can be sadness along with happiness. And that's a lot of what I talk about in, in Pain Rebel, which is the final, the, the book that I've written most recently um, back in 2020, is that there is this, um, you know, we don't want to look at the pain or we, would, we either want to bury ourselves in it and drown in it and be in a perpetual pity party about, you know, the woe is me of, of the, the crosses I bear and the, you know, the burdens on my shoulders, or we want to completely avoid it and not talk about it and just blow through that gateway. And what we actually have to appreciate, and it's one of my favorite movies, Collateral Beauty, is that in the pain, there is such opportunity for growth. There is such a journey that has to take place as we go through those checkpoints to look at what is causing us pain, what is bringing that pain to bear, and are we holding on to it for so long that we could be addressing that in another way that would give us so much more freedom. Jesus, we just covered in like a half hour. Like <laughs> Enough for like a 10 episode series, just different tangents, but no, I love it. It's beautiful before, and it is the last book, uh, that we're going to yes. be discovering. But before we jump into Correct. that, I'm always curious, uh, what is it from your past going far back? You know, you don't mm. have to go through every year, but what is right. it from your past that you think got you to where you are doing the work you do? Um, was whether it was education, yeah. whether it was family, I'd love to hear about what started you on the path and just kind of like a right. brief overview of whether, you know, you went to school, whether, you know, yes. the, the different organizations you might've worked at, but that led to this mix of the work you're doing, especially right. across all these different groups. Correct. So I think, you know, to, to give, you know, pain rebel and, you know, gives a little bit of an account of it and, and uh, little landslides does a deep dive for my actual experiences. But I'll say this, I think what led me to this path is from a from a spiritual perspective, a thematic perspective, is that I watched how people not standing in their own true and clear power allowed me to experience pain that never should have happened and for them to be stuck in pain that they could have escaped from but they didn't see what they were in charge of they didn't have the insights the tools the clarity mm. to be able to see where they began and ended and how they could put down some of those those hurts and so they handed them to other people so they held fire and it burned so they handed it to other people to stop burning but then everybody burned and so for me my 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 true my core is trying to come to people to alleviate suffering to be able to show people the pathway to their own empowerment never power over always power from within so that they can lead more productive lives and stop that that domino effect of having pain and handing it and handing it and handing it whether it's through generations in communities across cultures whatever it is to try to put that down, to create that that clarity and that healing, and I and from a from a tactical perspective, I kind of did what I call the uh, the the um, the bears in the, uh, the you know the porridge and the beds kind of thing of <laughs> you know 
I, I went to the first step and it was, you know, too hard, which was human resources. So I thought, oh, I'll go into human resources. That's how I'll help people. But it was too sanitized. It was too much procedural and on payroll yes, and benefits yes. and whatever. And I thought, you know, no, this isn't my space. So then I turned around. And I said, okay, I'm going to go into therapy. I'm going to, you know, get my master's in marriage and family therapy. I worked in, uh, you know, the addiction, you know, system here in Connecticut during my internships. And I got to tell you, I, I left that and thought, okay, this is too hot, right? Like this is way too <laughs> deep in this, right? You know, this is like, I'm seeing the ghosts of Christmas past every moment, you know, when I turn around, I can't do this, the, the heat's too high on this one. And then I backed up and I th thought, what else can I do? How can I pull these two things together and make something of it? And then I pursued my doctorate in educational leadership. And I thought, oh my gosh, so I'm looking at people from the inside out and systems through my master's program. I'm looking at the business application of how they people come together and work within organizations and with one another. And I'm looking at it through a leadership lens, like understanding what that takes to be able to bring people through that. And that's what led to the career. It was one of these, like, you know, I, I shook it up and that's what, what came out, which led to my, you know, the coaching work that I've done, the speaking that I've done, the teaching that I've done is that I've tried to be as authentic to my experiences and my insights to be able to deliver on that first promise that came from my, my early experiences. That's amazing. Thank you. That's amazing. I, yeah, I can relate to that kind of chaos of the path, but in the end, you right. look back and it's all applicable. So that's that's amazing. Absolutely. Uh, so yeah, we can we can jump into the book now if you'd like. Just uh, <laughs> absolutely. Because if if we don't, then I'm just going to keep asking you questions and going down these different tangents. But listen, John, we can we can run this however you want to run this. But you said you thought you said I, I can't believe you're game. I'm like I'm game. Where are we no, going? I know. So, and I, yeah. I appreciate that. But yeah. Uh, yeah, pain rebel. I mean, yeah. what what was it that um, what was it that actually triggered you wanting to, to write this? I mean, you've shared right. some of your experiences, but mm -hmm. what was like the point where you're like, this is what I want to write. This is what I want to put out there. Absolutely. So, you know, on, um, I had written little landslides. I had gone, I'd done the TEDx talk, um, but it was in preparing for the TEDx talk. It was in the conversations that came from my public speaking engagements and the coaching I was doing, the seminars I was, I was, um, giving, on little landslides, on the rise up through trauma, on looking at how do you, you know, build back a life when, you know, the, the, the foundation was cracked, right? And I started so many of those lessons, so many of those conversations led to the, the model that I was using and had been using with clients for a while on this idea about contracts. And I said, you know, I got to put this down on paper. I got I, I to gotta put this out to people. So if even if they aren't looking to work with me individually or they just want to kind of do a little on their own before they come to me, so a little more elevated and ready for a deeper conversation, I could give them the tools for that. So I started writing it before the TEDx talk back in, in March of 2018. And I had it, you know, fairly... I, I'm a, I was an eclectic writer back then where I would just kind of, you know, I'd have a thought, I'd write it down, I'd have a thought, I'd write it down and mm -hmm. have this big mess of notes. And then I'd say, okay, how am I going to put this together? How is this going to become a, you know, coherent whole? And I had done a lot of that. I had a somewhat of a structure, but not, it wasn't in kind of manuscript form, but I had a lot of the, the guts of it written. And, um, you know, the talk was in March of 2018. You may or may not know this. 
but I was in a motor vehicle accident in um, on August 31st of uh, 2018, which is just a number of months. It was actually a week after the TEDx talk was published. It took six months for the TEDx talk to hit the streets. And um, I was in a, it was in a rollover, um, you know, side impact um, car crash, which left me with a traumatic brain injury. So everything stopped, everything stopped in my life. I mean, I had, you know, pre-existing clients and I had, you know, gigs that I already had scheduled, but it changed the person that I am and how I come to things. So, you know, I am, I have all sorts of physical and mental, um, you know, uh, issues now that I didn't have prior to the accident. And I had planned on having that fall be the time I was going to pull pain rebel together and make it and put it out there as kind of a, an addendum to the, the TEDx talk and a follow on from little landslides. And that had to be completely rethought. I couldn't look at screens. I couldn't, I was having a hard time reading my handwriting changed, you know, like all sorts of things had, had happened as a result of the accident. And so I would go back to it and touch it a little, go back to it and touch it a little, but it took until, you know, the pandemic hit and I looked around me and I saw the suffering and I saw the pain that was happening. And I saw the people you talk about people being in like their home environment. So maybe they're a little more open to being vulnerable. I feel like it was a comprehensive collective trauma that we had all been hit with that then brought up all of the other individual and collective traumas that we had all been burying mm. or accommodating <laughs> for or covering oh, yeah. up. And all of a sudden, you know, coaches and therapists couldn't like turn their phones off quick enough. You know what I mean? Because people were coming to us and I said, you know, I, this is the time I have got to get pain rebel out the door. So, you know, with a lot of um, struggle, a whole lot of tears, you know, frustrations, because again, my brain just does not work in the way that it once did. I put it out and, uh, and, and got it out on the streets. Yeah. So that was the, that was the, the process and the, and, and the purpose behind it was just this imperative that I felt that it was, um, it was, it was something that was needed and I was the only person who could do it in this particular way. Cause these are my particular thoughts, right? When, when was it published? June of 2020. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So right in the midst of, you know, the pandemic and, uh, you know, lockdown. Yeah. And I mean, still relatively in the midst of just uncertainty and not, you know, no one really knowing where this, where the end of this was. Correct. Like, it's like when it started, it was like, okay, we'll all go home in March of 2020 for like Couple two weeks. weeks. This yeah. will <laughs> be yeah. over. And then meanwhile, it was just <laughs> cases going up and, yep. and here we are. And then, yeah. Here and we, we are had, over yeah. two years later. Crazy. And still going back into things, you know, right. Still having, you know, all sorts of questions and challenges to the the processes that we're following in this people are you know feeling the trauma of going back to work the entire landscape of work has changed you know no longer are people like yeah sure i'll go into the office five days a week they're like peace out i showed you i could work from home five days a week now you can have me work from home at least three and that whole that whole you know tenor changed and it's it's been huge for people i think kind of listening to their own voice, trying to find work-life balance, you know, all of that, that is all the, all again, the collateral beauty of a really tragic situation of all these beautiful silver linings that have come as a result of the pandemic, which do not diminish the terrible, awful, horrible human and other costs to it. But it's also, it's, it's, and. 
I love that phrase, collateral beauty. Yeah, favorite um, movie. If you haven't watched it, I mean, Will Smith stars in it, so I apologize. I know he's uh, he's persona non grata in a lot of circles right now, but yeah. he uh, he has made some amazing movies, and he starred in that, and it is by far you know my favorite movie because of that message of looking for that's, that. That's why. I mean, that's why his. It's not excusing him whatsoever. No, I think it's bullshit what he did. That just, especially sure. you're you're on the biggest stage ever, and you're going to do something like that. That just shows you how fucked up somebody is in the head. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think it, what I, it I, shows is that it's a response. You know, I, I think there's so many ands. Like I posted a couple of things that people had written about it because there isn't one perspective on that that fits the entire story. Mm. Yeah. You know, there is there are so many aspects of that, which I as a white woman am not, you know, enable able to, to say and to speak to in the way that I, you know, respectfully could. But there are so many aspects to what happened there and what led to that from an individual, from a from a group, exactly. from a systemic perspective that not, you know, one size doesn't fit all. But it was it was clearly a bad situation and, a, you know, it had a. I think I hope a lot of positive results, but it had some negative ones as well. Yeah, and and I appreciate what you said about you know this is a collective trauma that kind of brought out, and I'm paraphrasing because yeah. my memory is just absolute crap. <laughs> uh, but it, it kind of brought out everybody's own individual struggles. Mm -hmm. Yes, um, I've gone through that as well. I've talked about that on here, uh, my own mental health. So yeah, it's just a it's it's amazing. I don't know. There's just so much to talk about here. There's so many layers. <laughs> oh yeah. God. And I think, you yep. know, and his, his response to me, I mean, in watching it from the outside was a perfect demonstration at some level of a trauma response and one of those automatic um, responses that we don't pause to consider, right? Like we're, we're, we're in the moment and we're led by, like I, I tell my clients, if you feel it from your forehead to your gut, step away from the computer, put the phone down because nothing good is going to come from that. If you've got mm. tightness or, you know, your heart's racing or you got a headache burning, you are operating with emotion first and intellect second. And you need to like slow your roll because nothing, yeah. you know, good things are not going to come from the next action you're going to take. I mean, maybe by chance, but you're not going to be really grounded in that. And what I, what I saw in him was just this, again, amplified reaction to something which may have been theoretically appropriate in terms of calling someone out for, you know, a, a, a bad action, but in, yeah. you know, but, but there's, there's just so much, you know, there's so yeah. much complexity. No, no one it. can nail, no one can claim to understand what was fully there. It was wrong mm -hmm. in, and, in and of itself, but I'm just curious about uh, what the background is there. But Right. In any case, what what you had said just really brought up for me just the experience of going through the pandemic as a mm -hmm. father to young kids, and then right. this search that I'm going on about like what it means to be a man and what you know your yes. responsibilities. Because I look at the past, my dad, his generation, what they were going through versus what we're going through, and it's just completely different. Completely. You know, it's the proliferation of social media and you see everything that's going on around the world in real time, actual mm -hmm. video. You're not waiting, you know, weeks or whatever or days right. to see pictures. You're seeing stuff play out in real time. Then there's a pandemic. Then I got young kids. So there's just 
I don't know. There's the the so pandemic much. was just yeah. like I, very eye opening. And then yeah. there's like the pressure of what does it mean to be a dad? What does it mean to be a man? Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. So, I mean, that that was um, hard for me during the pandemic. So it, it just I like the way you say it was just like this collective that we went through. But then it, all these individual absolutely um, experiences it's, were bubbling up needs yeah. that we had. Right. I, I think the um, I, I think a lot of people talked about, you know, we're all in the same boat. Mm, we're all in the same <laughs> I love ocean. When people say that. It's right. Like, we're all yeah. in the same ocean, but we're not in the same boat because like, you know, I remember talking um, early on the pandemic. I you know, got on a number of calls trying to support some of my clients and colleagues um, around the world. And, you know, one of the things I said is, look, my experience as the mom of a, a college freshman and a high school junior is a very different experience and a work from home mom where I'm, I'm just like, I'm like, welcome to my world world because I've been working from home for 21 years. You know, like this yeah. is not any different to me. I just can't go out to coffee anymore. And so, you know, that was very different, but that's very different than your experience, than, you know, his experience and her yes. experience. Like everybody's got a different experience about that. And so to say that somehow I know I have, I have the, the corner on the narrative for what this mm. looks like is it's, it's, it's insanity. It's just yeah. not how that worked. And I think what I, what I, the message I hope to impart to people through pain rebel and, and talking about it, you know, during the pandemic and, and now is that looking inside to give compassion and looking outside to give compassion is where we start in any healing journey to be, to say, of course, a person would be feeling like that, given that background. Of course, that person would be, you know, I would be feeling that this would be happening. Of course, it makes perfect sense based on programming experiences, you know, what those tracks look like in our brains. But the second part is equally important, which is accountability to fix it. Mm -hmm. So you can't have accountability without compassion. You can't have compassion without accountability. That's both internal and external. And that those are like the, the hallmark, you know, pieces that I just, you know, I actually sent a client of mine who was having a struggle with it. I, I sent her a water bottle with like the words compassion and accountability equally placed around the, the water bottle. So every time she turned it, she was like, oh, yeah, I can't forget that. Oh, yeah, I can't forget that. Because it, it, it shows up so negatively when we hold people accountable without compassion or we hold compassion without holding them accountable. And we have to have both. And I, I think, yeah, that that applies to yourself as well yes. as others, because Correct. hopefully and it probably won't work out this way because we always forget lessons, you know, so we can say <laughs> during the pandemic, oh, my God, this is what I realized when I come out of this. I'm so a new person, blah, blah, blah. Right. But I mean, I think that should apply to us as well. I mm -hmm. think even it when it comes to mental health, obviously, I want people to listen. But at the same time, I have I have a. There has to be accountability of me from me that right. I have to speak up and share as, you know, as comfortably yeah. as possible when I do mm -hmm. feel comfortable. But I, people have a responsibility to themselves to um, to speak for themselves, to speak up for themselves. Mm -hmm. um, no one can come and meet us 100 percent where we are. We have to fight for ourselves at the same time. So Correct. I look at I, I look at this accountability in a, in a new way. Like you said, mixing compassion mm. with accountability, mm -hmm. but it also has to be to yourself as well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, because that's we were starts. so good at keeping facades like everything is fine. Right. Yeah, so absolutely. If you're not showing any of that, you can't be surprised when people that may have wanted to reach out 
haven't done so because you're not showing them where you really are. Correct. And I think, you know, going back to your piece about, you know, what does it mean to be a man? I think one of the disservices that we've done to young men and therefore, you know, older men is that, especially men in my generation, right? I look at my peers, is this this discomfort with vulnerability of being authentic and transparent and and therefore honest, right? Mm. With our with emotions, with fears, with apprehensions. Like it's okay to be angry. Oh, but it's not. But it's not okay yeah. to be fearful. Like all of these permissions that have not been granted to the mental health journey of, of men in, at least in our culture, I think has done such a disservice and it's led to a dynamic um, that has, again, you know, been centuries long, right? And it's, and it's, and it's coming, but looking at the amount of violence that's happening, it's again, understandable given the lack of tools and understanding and the framework within which, you know, young men are brought up and what kinds of messages that they're given. So I feel like I'm hoping, you know, I, I, I want our women to be empowered in the ways that we're trying to, you know, empower women. I just want to see an and where we're also paying equal and passionate attention to what are we doing with men? Because I feel yeah. like what we, if we keep going in this direction of being, you know, kind of angry about, you know, the, the, the failings of, of men in some of the ways that, you mm-hmm. know, they have been failing, right. And the yeah, violence yeah. and all of Absolutely. that, Absolutely. that, but if we keep focused on that and don't appreciate the, and the pain and the trauma and the confusion and the lack of resources and tactics and, you know, and support that we're giving them, then we've, we've just vilified, you know, a segment of our humanity and haven't actually resolved the problem. And yeah. so I feel like there has to be that discourse as well. Absolutely. Because I think there is just that generalization that if, if we looked at a certain segment of the population, you know, men in this case, in a certain way in the past, mm-hmm. that's the way they all are. Um, right. And some of it is that perception that's that's put out there, the narrative, wherever you may see it. And some of it is our own doing. Like, I have a responsibility. If I have right. needs, I, I have a responsibility to myself right. to mm-hmm. seek out the tools. And and admittedly, like I would I've been on that journey all my life. Um, mm-hmm. Not severe enough for me to um, to seek out. Uh, help or therapy or anything like that but then during right. the pandemic it's like okay that facade yeah you don't have you Bye-bye. don't have any energy <laughs> left for that facade because Nothing. shit is falling apart <laughs> right exactly you're like just grabbing things as they're flying through the air exactly yeah. so um so no i appreciate that and i think it, it is fear on our side where yes we'll look weak like we're not in control uh, like we're taking away from other people that are, like it's a zero sum game that if we mention that we need help or right. anything that we're taking away from a woman that may need help or a child that may need help. Right. And I think that's what it was during a pandemic is like your kids come to you, you're taking care of them. You as the man or whatever, are taking care of your wife and the stresses she right. may have. And then you turn around, you're like, holy shit. Like, What's left for me? Yeah, what I yeah, and it's and, and it's yeah. it's I think for me, just speaking for myself, it's not even about what I need right. to come my way, but just what my own responsibility as well, what I should be expressing. Right. right. I remember this when I worked in addiction services, my mentor there, you know, used the airplane analogy to understand yes. that 
you know, for codependence, right? For people yes. who have an addict in their midst, mm -hmm. they become very martyrdom and self-sacrificial to the extent that they feel like they're doing their, the addict, you know, good by being so supportive when in fact them not taking care of themselves first is what actually perpetuates the addiction cycle. So there's really the sense that you've got to put your oxygen mask on first. You've got to figure out man, woman, child, whoever you are, you come first in your life because you don't, you're not going to have the capacity to share with others if you aren't practicing solid self-care. It is yeah. a message that needs to be drummed in over and over again. That somehow it's not about self-indulgence. It's about self-care, you know, yep. It's yep. this piece about, you know, making sure that you have a tank full enough to be able to take your party wherever they need to go. If you're not doing that, you're, it's actually unkind and ungenerous mm. to the people around you because you're not giving from a place of abundance. You're yeah. giving from a place of lack. And yes. whenever we give from a place of lack, you know, it sets in resentment. Yeah. Right. Oh, I can see that. I could see that. You know, like you know, I, I, I mean, gave you all that. And, you know what I mean? Yeah. But like, hold yeah. on a second. I didn't yeah. tell you to give me all that. You need to yeah. give to you too. Right. Absolutely. And that's why I think that perception of, you know, I'm not saying all men, but certain yeah. men where it's like, okay, this is, I guess, the role that we have to play. This is what it has to look like. And I've realized that once I, I started taking care of my own needs, like you can just breathe, the tension yeah. needs your body. You can be more who you are. You can deliver right. more of who you are. You have a little more energy. It's just, I don't know. I, th I just think it's a, it's a powerful message that should get out there, not just for men, but anybody that kind of has mm -hmm. to breathe. Right. Um, Absolutely. So Bridget, what is, so what does Pain Rebel look like? What is, can you give an overview of the book? Uh, what sure. is like the, the arch of the book, the arc of the book, the story arc, or yeah. the path that you lay out for anybody who's reading it? So in all of my books, I write how I speak. So when you pick up my book or, you know, you listen to it on audio, you are having a conversation with me. So I'm going through kind of giving you a sense of why am I thinking like this? What mm. evidence do I have? What are the stories behind where this comes from? What's the science behind it? What's the just human storytelling arc behind it? And how did we get here? So how do we get to this place where Pain Rebel was needing to be written, right? Like what evidence do we have out there that we are not handling pain well? Is it the addiction rates? Is it violence? Is it suicide rates? Like what is it that's showing us that we have a problem with pain? We have a really broken relationship to what pain means. Do we need to, you know, are we, are we trying to numb it away? Are we trying to ignore it? Are we, you know, jumping into it with, you know, full, full zest and just staying in it? We need to fix that. And then it, what it takes you through are all the tactics and thought shifts. So I call myself a cage rattler because we, you know, that Hotel California song, right, is that you have the key to let yourself out. You just don't know where it is, right? You didn't realize it. You've just been sitting in there with the key in your hand and you didn't know how. And so what I do with people is help shift their thoughts to kind of challenge some of those, those, those pathways that they've created over time that they've convinced themselves are the only way to see how things really are and see instead how things could be with one shift of thought, with one kind of opening up to an and or an or in the ways that they're they're conceiving of things and then give them the roadmap to get them out of that cage. So that's really what Pain Rebel does is it challenges those beliefs. It gives you different ways of thinking. It, I give you a lot of personal stories, a lot of stories from clients and friends 
to say, you know, you're not in this alone. This is what we all go through. This is this is mm. what how we got to this moment, and we can get ourselves out if we we take you know thoughtful and decisive action. And then it gives a roadmap for recreating those contracts that I talked about, about challenging, finding out what they are, challenging what they are, and then writing new ones that create an entirely new life, that they really just change everything. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've had clients come to me and I, you know, I'll ask them, you know, oh, so they'll tell me something that went wrong. And I'll say, which contract was that? They're like, oh, I know, is that old yeah. contract I was listening to? You know what I mean? Yeah. And then they'll say, or they'll come back and they'll tell me a story about how they did this new amazing thing and they got into this different place in their relationship or their life. And I say, okay, what new contract were you sign were you, you following when you did that? And they'll tell me the new contract. So it's a really it's a guidepost, uh, you know, a, a beacon for being able to get to that place that you know we all want to be because this is one short life. And you know, one of my favorite quotes from Mary Oliver is, "What are you going to do with your one wild and precious life?" And we lose track. And I, you know, I know I'm older than you, but you know, I hit 50 last year, and I got to say, it is that that gateway, that point, that 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 taking off point is, oh my gosh, like what have I done? Mm. What have I done to this point? And what level of awareness is it going to take from me to make sure that the remaining years that I have on this planet are used and used well? that I have left an impact, that I have lived my life with passion and purpose, that I have made good use of this one wild and precious life. I love that. <laughs> I love that only because um, I think that's a good reminder people need to hear. Yeah. I need, I think it's one that they need to live. Right. Uh, I think what uh, most of us uh, and me for most of my life was, I was living very tentatively. Mm -hmm. Um haven't nailed it, but I love the trial and error of the experimentation of just right. trying different things and, and seeing what fires me up. Like my practice has evolved over the last five, six, seven years where mm. I'm just like, ah, oh, no, that's not for me. Now I'm going to float over here, see what's going on. I think, right. uh, there's just so much here. Yeah. <laughs> so much here. But right? I think we'll, have, an, we'll have a take two someday. Yeah. That, oh yeah, definitely. You got enough books. Um, there you go. But I think a lot of it has to do with just this idea of perfection. Like you need to mm -hmm. nail it that, you know, I've, I've brought it up ad nauseum here where it's just kind of like, again, that yeah. programming of the younger life, right? You gotta, you gotta get grades. You gotta yeah. get grades. You gotta get that a, then your path is going to look like college. Then it's going to be, it's going right. to look like this. Then it's going to be like the two kids, the, the white picket mm -hmm. fence, the, where we're living by that script that we think we have to go by like me when i was like what does it mean to be what does it look like to be like the real dad what does it look like right. to be like the real man there's this pressure that we put on ourselves and at this point for me i gotta say like nobody told me this is what you have to do as a dad right nobody said that definitively to me i was reading things in society yeah. and i took those as okay that's my cue yeah but no you one gathered information me. and then you gathered then information you compiled it exactly that right. was on me um but i think there is this stress of like what a perfect life looks like that mm -hmm. it has to look a certain way what is that goal that we have to work towards but we lose sight of like those moments we lose sight of the journey right. um again I, my whole thing is i think we skip this we try to stick to scripts too often where we yeah. kind of and in that path of as a young child this is what you have to look like yeah um we lose it's sight limiting. of who we are yeah, it's limiting. I, think, yeah. I, I don't know about you, but I, I think when I've when I've had clients have real breakthroughs in their lives, it's when they've kind of gone back and and rediscovered 
mm-hmm. who they are. Oh, yeah. Like, like the curious child, the child yep. of imagination, the child of wonder, where they were following a script to to or a contract. Yeah. You know, they they signed off for life's contract, that script yeah. that's handed to them. And they kind of lose themselves. And a lot of times when they finally reach that place of fulfillment, it's that they've reached back and said, this is who I was all about. This is exactly. this is now who I want to bring more into what I'm doing. It's not this diversion of this is where my soul is going and this is what mm-hmm. society wants me to do. Right. And it's it's taking off those layers. You know, there's um, there's a quote. Reprogramming. I'm, yeah, it's reprogramming. But it's um, it's not about creating yourself. It's about peeling away the layers mm. that are covering who you are. Yes. Right. And, and I think that's what happens is over time with all those contracts we sign and then all the actions that we take based on those contracts that make it we perceive that that's reality. That's the way it should be yes. that we end up not being able to challenge and go back and look at that. You reminded me of a story and to get a little, um, I won't get too religious, a little spiritual on you. So, you know, I used to be a CCD teacher years ago and, um, and I had, I had first and second graders. So, you know, talk about, you know, in the prime of, you know, forming those ideas. And one of them came to me and said, you know, um, Miss Bridget, what's heaven like? And I said, you know, listen, uh, first of all, I haven't been, so I couldn't really, you know, give (laughs) you a write up. Um, and also, you know, I want you to go home and ask your parents that question. Cause as much as I'm helping to, re- you know, form your religious identity, I- I'm also just a teacher, right? I'm mm-hmm. not your parents. So I want you to go back and ask them that same question. So, but I'll give you my answer. And my answer is that, um, when you get to that gate, you're asked three questions. Did you have fun? Did you use the gifts that I gave you to the best of your abilities? And did you try to leave every situation better than you found it? And if your answer to that question is, each one of those questions is yes, whether it's a huge yes or a moderate yes, come on in. There's puppies, there's chocolate, right? We got it all. (laughs) But I think a lot of times we get lost on the way to that, that we forget about having fun that we forget about using our gifts to the best of our abilities. And we forget that our our deal is here is to try to leave every situation better than we found it, is to try to leave the best of ourselves whenever and however we can. Yeah, but if you think about it, no one says that to anybody in school. Right, right. Like it's not, it's not in a curriculum. Nope. Uh, if they're lucky, the the professor, the teacher, whoever may yeah. be, has that what if they're lucky they had somebody like your CCD students, right? Right. That puts it that way. But it's like, how often, how often do you forget? I mean, you don't even know that, right? You don't even know that unless somebody tells you along the way, or you realize it as an adult, the way I did, I'm like, holy shit, like those three questions, I didn't think about it that way. But that's the way I try to live my life now. Mm -hmm. Kids aren't told that. No. So you know, you th- they think it's about the, you know, the Ferrari that they finally get to own or the, you know, the house on the beach or like whatever the, the, the monetary thing is or how many likes they get on some social media post mm. or like whatever it is. No, like at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what job you ended up holding. It doesn't matter if you were a, you know, trash collector or the president of the United States. If you can't answer those three questions appropriately, then what life did you actually lead? 
And it's not about heaven or hell. And that was just in that context yeah, was, yeah. The, was the piece about it. But it's about what kind of life did you actually live? You know, my parents, my dad died at 45. My mother and my stepfather died both at the age of 69, did not live long lives, did not live super happy lives. They had happy moments. They had, you know, mm. some joys along the way. But when I look at, did they have those three things in mind? They lost sight of those, right? You know, in many different occurrences. And I, damned if I'm going to do the same. You know that that that's that for me would be the the biggest crime. What were they again, Bridget? Uh, forty five and sixty nine. No, no, no. The, oh. the the questions. Oh, the three questions. Um, they did were, you have fun? Did you have fun? Did you use your gifts to the best of your abilities? And did you leave every situation in person better than you found them? Hmm. And again, we don't have control, ultimate control over the last, but we sure as heck have a contribution that we can give, right? Yeah, yeah. I was gonna, I was gonna say, like thinking back to my parents, um, grew up in a blue collar household. My yep. dad passed away about a year and a half ago. My mom's still here. Um, but looking, and I still say that my dad is still my greatest leadership coach, mm. and he didn't give me lessons per se. Like he never sat me down and said, "Today I'm going to tell you about" or anything right. like. That. But <laughs> he it was by more. Example by example and yeah. he was anybody that knew him knew like he was always having fun um right. that he was always trying to leave people with a sense of just mm -hmm. enjoyment of life so for me it's like i think he, he may have passed, yeah he lived that and because of their sacrifices i'm in a better spot financially than they ever were but right. like it's their win as well mm -hmm. and looking back it's like i wouldn't have wanted to grow up in any other that i know of right i mean right. my own experience because they had they could answer those questions right where they had fun they did the best they could um and they tried to leave everything better than they found it i mean right. that's what i just realized those are three solid foundational keys yeah. for just the measure of Again, it depends who you ask. Some may say yeah. the Lamborghini, the mansion, this <laughs> or that, but sure, that's a great measure. That's a great just. I think it's a grounding measure. You yeah. know, it's a grounding measure, and it allows you know. And I and I challenge my clients when they're thinking about you know where they're going in their career, their next step, or whatever. Is I you know I pull them back to that. You got to answer those three questions. At the end of the day, those are the three questions that guide a life. You can make yeah. a living. You can do all these things. You can also want the Lamborghini. You can also want the beach oh, yeah, house. Course, you can do those things. You can have those. It's not Absolutely. about, I have to live a life of, you know, of, of you don't have to and, be a monk. <laughs> right, like, exactly. You, know, you don't have to be. But you can do those three things amidst that. It's if you sacrifice everything else, you sacrifice those three things for everything else. That's when I feel like that there needs yes. to be a course correction because that's where you end up, you know, hitting 50, 60, 70 years old and go, what did I do with my life? What did I do with my time? So Bridget, do you have the, uh, I don't know if you know them by memory, you don't have to list them all or if you have the book handy, but are there a couple examples of chapter titles or what oh. the themes may be in the book just to get a sense of now within that broad scope that you laid out, what are right. some of those kind of targets? Well, I actually have the book in front of me. So one of the things that um, that I, I lost in the accident is memory. But here's here's the book. Here's Pain Rebel. Um, and I think, you know, one of them, you know, that we just talked about is the title of the chapter is it's terminal, which is talking about the fact that no one gets out of here alive. Mm. And that if looking at your life, you recognize that 
there's there's not going to be at the end of the day some you know evaluation of oh did you um, you know did you hold that grudge well you know what I mean like there's so what are you actually living for you gotta you gotta start that the releasing obligation chapter is about forgiveness it's about that new brand of forgiveness that a lot lot of people miss that they're not recognizing is holding them back from so many places. I can't tell you how many of my clients, executive level, like, I mean, CEO level people, they are being held back in their careers and their lives because they're holding on to grudges and resentments that are blocking them from being able to really embrace the full force and power of their, their spirit, their intellect, their passions for things. So I think that is, you know, is huge. And, you know, one of my um, my favorite parts of the book, can I read it to you? Sure, of course. Okay. So it's called The Pain Rebel Creed. And I included it because it, uh, you know, it came to me one night as I was thinking through, um, you know, what this book meant to me and, you know, why did I write it? How, how did all this come to be? And I realized that there was a, um, there's a creed that I wanted everyone to live by. Like, if you're going to be a pain rebel, what does it mean? And here it says, I am a pain rebel. I choose to own my thoughts, feelings, and behaviors because I know that they hold my joy and embody my gratitude. I acknowledge that awareness equals choice and choice equals power. I commit to unearthing my unconscious drives and contracts so that I can choose deliberately and flourish in my personal, peaceful power. I invest in myself and my bountiful potential by rewriting my contracts and devoting my energy to healthy new contracts. I acknowledge that my old contracts helped me to survive. I honor my path and let go of shame for the pain I held before I knew more. I deploy my guard, my superhero, and my healer when faced with trauma. I construct agreements in the place of expectations, committing to following my wants and not shackled by my shoulds. I deliberately build boundaries so I can forgive myself and others for our misdeeds without being unsafe mentally, emotionally, or physically. I actively question my thinking, adopting a curiosity stance to root out cognitive distortions that undermine my clarity and beauty. I passionately and purposefully drive toward my blissful destiny, letting pain come and go, embracing its lessons with my steadfast strength. I come from, walk in and toward love, knowing that happiness, peace, and abundance are my birthright. So that See, is the message of Pain Rebel. And that's, it's amazing how powerful that is. And it's also amazing how um, internal that is. Yes. That you can find happiness in all those things, paying attention to them, experimenting with them, experiencing them. Mm -hmm. But we always spend so much time looking outward yes. to what's going to fulfill us, to what's going to make us successful, to what's going to make us happy. It's always about what's out there coming in and never rarely about diving into me to see what I can find and bring out. Right. And that is the path to, to true happiness. You know, they did a study, you know, a number of years ago, and they've updated the numbers, but they talk about happiness, the, the path toward joy, and that people think it's going to come from money and success and, you know, acquisitions and possessions. 
And what they found was, was that up to at that time, it was $70,000, depending on what yeah. you know, area you're in and kind of where it is, it might be more like $100,000. But once you get to that number, if you're making 70 grand a year, you're making 80, you're making 100 mm-hmm. grand a year, depending on your context, you have your basic needs met, you're able to pay your bills, you're able, you know, our threshold for what needs are like an yes. iPhone are much higher than they were when you know I was growing <laughs> up. But, yeah. but our needs are met, right? And our basic wants are met. You know, we're able to go on a vacation. We're not worrying about whether or not the electric bill is going to be turned off. The level of joy that people experience at $70,000 a year to $7 million a year is no different. Mm. There is no increase at that delta. Once you get to the point where you feel, like in Maslow's hierarchy, a sense of safety, as soon as you get past safety, Mm-hmm. then you are the happiness does not correspond to the money. Yes. So everything else has to come from within. Yeah, I've I've heard that. Yes, exactly. I've heard that. I heard about that study and I heard it was 70,000. Even the latest version that I heard or the latest number I heard was 70,000. Okay. Uh, and it I was is thinking funny. with inflation, it's probably a little higher now. Yeah. Gas yeah, prices the way they are. But, yeah. <laughs> but, I think yeah. it was 70,000 two months ago. Now it's like 130,000 mm-hmm. with gas prices. Um, exactly. But no, that stands out uh, because it makes complete sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but people think, you know, that and I think one of the things that, you know, as leaders, you know, if, if some of your listeners are, you know, corporate executives, I was having, having this conversation with another consultant yesterday. And the idea that you can somehow shackle people to your organization by paying them more mm-hmm. money, once you exceed that number, you have to recognize that you've got to put up more than a number. You've yeah, got to put up, you know, culture. They're counting on the fact that no one's going to know that number. Right. But the because point we're, is- we're still yeah. under the misperception that 130 is better than 70 or whatever it may be. Correct. But they've yeah. shown and that you're seeing in this mass exodus and, you know, the mass resignation, right, is that yeah. you're finding that people are saying enough. If you're yeah. not going to help me have quality of life, if you're not going to give me a good boss, if you're not going to give me work-life you know, balance, sat- job satisfaction, passion and purpose within my role, peace out. Like yeah. you can't pay me enough money, or at least you can, but for a very short period of time, I'm going to bank it and I'm going to go and start my own company or go and go find another job down the road. And with you know the, the challenge for finding talent and finding people who are good at what you need them to be good at, we've got to look at how we're treating those people within organizations so that we are giving them more than a big paycheck. Yeah. I mean, just looking at that number, my parents made maybe a little more than that Yeah, combined. Right. Absolutely. Meanwhile, meanwhile, I make more than that. And my kids have like whatever, not right. whatever toys, but they're always asking for like the next toy. My sister and right. I had like, you know, bare, for Christmas. bare bone. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. like you can imagine what the generational difference is. You know, mm-hmm. they were they were the first in my family to this country. You know, yep. I don't have to deal with that. I was the first to go to college, right. white collar job. I've worked with them at their blue collar job when I was in college. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, it's like, <laughs> and I'm that old man now. Yeah. When, when like, my kid when is like, my day. I want, yeah, I want, <laughs> I want this daddy. I want this. And I'm looking and he, they actually have, we have like an extra room. So they have a, a playroom in the house. Yeah. I had my bedroom as a kid. Right. I'm like, let me talk to you. Can I see you over here? Over here. Exactly. We kid is six years old. I'm like, yeah. you see all this stuff that's in this room. I wish I, you know, so 
it's you so can, different. you know, if you really look at your your life, if you have similar experience to me, I mean, you realize mm -hmm. like, and my sister and I, yes, we wanted for things, but we had everything we want that we needed. And we got some things that we wanted. Um, but Maslow's hierarchy, I bring that up so much because mm -hmm. I thought about that even with my mental health um, experience in the last year where it's like, mm -hmm the safe all the safety the yeah. esteem like all that stuff is covered so like my anxiety today is like this restlessness of what what is what are those top tiers about right. you know that that enlightenment that that would the the stuff that's like not tangible mm -hmm. so it's a little restless restlessness about that so it's it's amazing that you bring that up because that's always in going through that experience myself that's what i kind of related to mm -hmm. is just okay my basic needs are met my safety, my security, I got friends, like my esteem, like, okay, now what else now what? is there? Well, yeah. So it's right. impatience more than anything, but it, it, it manifested itself in kind of like this, this restlessness, this anxiety. Yeah. Now I see why you picked up the book long, you know, about longing because yeah, I mean, <laughs> longing it is, is looking at the, the twin sides of that whole yeah. experience of that. It's good and can also rob you, right? Like it's, it's not yeah, one thing. Exactly. Or the other. Yeah. And, and longing, uh, that resonated with me because my wife's always like, why do you listen to this depressing music? Right. <laughs> and, and I wrote a eulogy for my friend when she was mm. in college. She's like, can you write a eulogy for me? I'm like, <laughs> why? Yeah, she's right? like, no, it's a class assignment. And one of the things I brought up is that she and I were always into like, yeah, it was like, I guess you could say depressing music. Yeah. It was just like deeper tones. It wasn't, you know, yeah. pop stuff. And I wrote in there that, Jesus, I was ahead of my time. I was ahead of Susan Cain in her book. But I, I said, listen, and people always said this about her because of the music that she listened to. But what that music is about, understanding, like wanting to know what drives that level of grief, mm -hmm. of sadness, of of longing. And mm -hmm. then Susan Cain came out with this book. So I'm like, all right, now I got to read it because I love. Right. I, it parallels. Book. Right. Yeah. So um and yeah, and I think that resonates, you know, when I talk, think about pain rebel as well of tying that back in is that people have this fear of touching pain, of touching grief, of touching depression oftentimes. And so mm. they avoid it. They don't want to listen to the sad music. You know, that toxic positivity has taken over in some angles where, no, uh, no, you just got to be positive. You got to be chipper. Be like it's all like Britney yeah. Spears and like Justin Timberlake. I'm like, but to me, that's not, to me. It's not truthful. It's not real. Right. Um, like pain and struggle to me is more real. So if somebody can write a tone or, or yeah. capture a melody where it's like, God damn, yeah. that hurts. I want to know. I just want to feel that sensation because it's, it, it's built out of longing. It's built right. out of something that is that fucking good right. that you are broken without it. That yep. sounds morbid, but it's it's just an appreciation for what's beautiful in life. I think it's, the, you know, I think if we don't have those depths of pain and, you know, negative experiences, I don't know that we have the same appreciation for the highs. I, you yes. know, I, when I look at a lot of the people I know who have been broken and battered by various experiences in life they are the ones that are noticing the butterflies. They are the ones that are noticing the way that the breeze hits the trees, mm -hmm. right? They're the ones that are noticing how, what a gift every new day is. Whereas people, you know, who have not necessarily tapped into that space don't have that same level of it because they haven't, 
they haven't acknowledged they've had sorrow i'm not saying that they have not yeah but they yeah. haven't embraced it for what it can actually bring them and yes. that to me is the is the 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 basis behind pain rubble is to not be sucked into the model of pain that we have been sold that it's something to avoid or something to drown in but it's something that is supposed to guide us and teach us and inspire mm. us and and heal us like it's that is the purpose of pain and when we use pain in a you know we hijack it and we use it in a way that it wasn't meant that's when we end up with like long-term sorrow, long-term, you know, just kind of malaise or detachment from the the lives that we were meant to yeah, live. Yeah, I mean, it's facing it head on instead of trying to suppress that feeling. And Correct. then any feeling that you suppress, it's going to catch up with you. You're using energy to suppress it. Yeah. And then when it finally unleashes like that rage we were talking about, mm -hmm. it's been stewing in that, in that uh, pot for so long that it's just going to explode. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. No, no time for that. <laughs> so Bridget, I'm curious. Yeah. What, what lessons have you taken from writing this book? I mean, I'm always curious if ah. somebody leads into a book, they want to write the book, they have right. their ideas for the book, it evolves, the book comes out. What in that process changed in you, whether it was you looked at things differently mm. um, for better or worse? Uh, how did it change you putting this book out? You know, I think um, it, it may have been different with different books, but for this one, um, because each one of them was like a different aspect of me, um, I think the this one was so tied in with my brain injury and so tied in with this idea of my own grief about having to leave behind a, a version of myself that I no longer could have, you know, that this brain injury has forever changed me and how I, you know, I, I live moment to moment, day to day, mm -hmm. that um, the process of writing it was also not anything like the process of writing any of the other manuscripts. So I think in and of itself, it was like a meta experience of Pain Rebel, right? It was like I was practicing what I was preaching by sitting in and, and, and living in the grief of that and also feeling honored that I got to take that message across the finish line for other people to benefit from um, and really acknowledging that, that same, that compassion accountability piece that I held compassion for myself of how freaking hard it was to put this together and to, to see it through to its completion, but also the accountability to get the thing done because I made a promise that I was going to do it, you know, that it needed to be done. And um, I, I think just living in that um, was, I don't know if it was a lesson for me, but it certainly was an experience for me you know, and this acceptance that going forward, because many people have asked me, am I going to write more books? Because, you know, I was, I wrote the first five books in three and a half years. Wow. So, you know, that was, you know, I was just cranking books out and, you know, and these are, you know, a couple hundred page books. They're not short books. Mm. And, um, and I was pumping them out because it just came so easy to me and at some level. And, um, and Pain Rebel was not that experience. And going forward, I know that my process will have to change to accommodate for how my brain works now. And so it was that too, it was just learning in that experience, oh, this book is not only different because of its content and like its meta process for me, mm -hmm. but it's also different because I can never again do a book like this. I can never again follow the process that I've always followed in the past to make that happen. It's gonna have to be different. Yeah. So have you seen, have you got a taste for what that process would be? 
Yeah, I think, you know, before it used to be, again, very eclectic and very like drawing things from different places and putting them in this pile and then sorting it through as I went um, because of my short term memory and processing issues, which is where the, the damage um, is most severe and my bandwidth because I, I um, you know, I feel sick all the time. I have, you know, tinnitus, I'm dizzy, you know. Um, so I don't have the, I can't power through things like I used to be able to, I can't do a marathon writing session mm -hmm. and organize and cut and paste and move things around. So in this way, instead of it being kind of, um, you know, eclectic and, you know, um, you know, disorganized first to get organized, it's going to have to start organized. It's going to have to start very methodically, very step-by-step -step from front to back. Mm -hmm. um, and very, uh, you know, um, probably the way a lot of other people write books, right? <laughs> Not Almost like sequential. Correct. Like, yes, yeah. exactly. Like a step-by-step -step versus jumping around. I was very much, you know, a, um, you know, a more of a squirrel, you know, kind of, um, <laughs> uh, you know, disposition. And now I'm going to be much more like a bear, you know, yeah. I'm going to kind of like go to the feeder, you know, exhaust it, go to the next feeder, exhaust it, you know, kind of thing. So It'll be different. Have you thought about that uh, that example as a bear before? No, it just came up. It just popped up. <laughs> yeah, I love bears. My daughter quite loves the bears. example. Yeah, but it is so, it's that same kind of you know feeling. Yeah. Yeah. So you know more or less what you would want to write about next. I have a couple. Of, I have a few ideas in the hopper. One of them, um, I've so please no one take this um, book title from me is unnesting, which is this idea. And you know, again, because I've, I try to write from experience and write from observation, um, that you know, being a, an empty nester, even though my kids are you know coming home at times and you know not really gone gone, but um, that process of unnesting, we nest when we're about to have a baby, like you're going mm -hmm. through with your wife, right? And mm -hmm. then we unnest when we're on the opposite end of that developmental trajectory. And so what does unnesting look like? What does that mean for kind of knowing yourself differently, recreating a new life, a new identity that isn't anchored in the same way it was before you unnested, you know? And I think, you know, people of my gen, you know, my age, my kind of, you know, developmental trajectory are, it's, it's a hard, it's a hard phase. It's a great phase and it's a hard phase and trying to figure out how to navigate that. I think I have um, observed and listened to people, you know, teach me and me teach them a lot of lessons that could be really helpful in navigating this transition so that they, again, can make the most of this, this short, sweet life. Yeah. And I think between that topic itself and then your experience writing about your other various topics, your coaching, yeah. your, your writing voice, I think people find mm. that very helpful. Thank you. Appreciate that. Well, thank you for being a cheerleader for me, John. <laughs> Absolutely. I love yeah. what you're doing. Thank so you. So before we well. wrap up, is there anything yeah. you want to share? Anything that's coming up? Anything you want to put out there? Anything at all? Oh, that's a great question. So um, one of the things that um, I never stopped to do, you know, putting out five books in three and a half years, I didn't really, you know, by the time I finished one project, I was already halfway into the next one, you know, running on to that one. Um, I never slowed down to actually do a lot of things with any one of the books. So one of the things that I've noticed in this new, you know, new normal for me is that I have so much content out there that I have not leveraged in, in the ways that I could, that I need to go back instead of trying to run forward to the next mm. kill. And mm -hmm. so I'm, what I'm doing right now, I'm working with a couple, you know, content developers and, you know, people who are better technically than I am and creating some online courses. So I'm creating a, what I call the revolution. 
um, uh, which I is like the, yeah. Um, so it's a revolution classroom that I'm going to be putting out there in, you know, the various spaces to take online courses so that people can take the courses of the topics that are covered in pain rebel in a way that, you know, they're self-delivering, you know, they're hearing my voice, they're, you know, watching the graphics and they're getting a sense of what that means. And my hope is, is that, you know, it, it builds their, their, you know, kind of arsenal, their, their toolkit for being able to face what life brings them and also gives them a kind of an introduction to me so that if ever they want to bring that work beyond that and work with me as a coach or as a trainer or as a consultant, that they've, they've gotten enough of a taste of me that they know what they're getting into. Um, and we can, we can have those conversations. So yeah, so that's coming up. That'll hopefully launch sometime, you know, this late spring, early summer is awesome. my hope. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds you. amazing. As soon as you, you share anything on social media about that, I'll I'll share. Um, oh, thanks, John. Absolutely. I, I just I love that. what you're doing. I love your work. Um Thank and you. just based on all the experiences that, that you've had to date and just sharing yeah. that with people, I think that's huge. And I think, yeah, people hearing your voice um behind, mm. you know, not just the book, but hearing mm -hmm. your voice. If you have video sharing video, I think a lot yeah. of people will benefit from that because it's not just how much they're going to read, but how right. much they're going to listen to you and actually you're going to kind of bring it to their living rooms. Exactly. And it's funny that, you know, even my, I remember my cousin um, picked up my first book years ago and she said, holy crap, it's like you're in my head because I do, I write exactly how I speak. <laughs> so it's like, you know, yeah. I, I, I've had professional editors just walk away from pro the project. They're like, I cannot edit this because it's, it's just wrong. Like you're, you're, you know, incomplete sentences, like one word sentences. And I said, I understand you're going to have to edit it. Like you're editing a transcript of a conversation <laughs> because, yes. because yeah. that's how I'm going to write to people because I find that it's much more approachable mm -hmm. when they can just feel like we're sitting having coffee together and we're talking yes. about the, the perils of life and love and, you know, um, professions and figure out how to tackle them all. Yeah. So, it doesn't have to yeah. have the, it doesn't have to have the, the perfect box with the perfect ribbon. Like right. you're talking to somebody who loves chaos. So right. I, I've learned to appreciate chaos a lot more in the last 25 months. Oh, heck yeah. Yeah. Haven't we all, or, or learn to, you know, revile it, but either way, we certainly yeah, sure have I, learned how to live in it. <laughs> I think it depends on the day. Mm -hmm, Appreciation, absolutely. revile it, appreciate it, revile it. Yeah. But, uh, Bridget, thank you so much for sitting oh, down you, for this conversation. This was fun. I look forward to reading the book. I think it's got a great message. Thank you. Um, something that's just so timely for the last two years of, of what everybody has gone through and just sharing from your experience with others. I think that's just, that's just an amazing story. Thank you, John. It was a pleasure. Really. I, I love, uh, love what you've been doing out here and uh, what the book leads, you know, giving a voice to books and authors who can make this journey, uh, you know, more tenable and more enjoyable. So thank you for that. I am learning a lot from all of you. Um, yeah. It's yeah. It's just insane to think of, how much I've picked up and learned. It wasn't even my intention. I've always been a curious person, mm -hmm. but just sitting in these conversations and all these different industries and backgrounds and seeing how it's all connected in some way or another, it's just, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm just very lucky. You got a good seat. You got a yeah, real good I do. seat right Absolutely. There. Front row yeah. seat. And I love it. So thank you for talking about pain rebel, how we take Absolutely. our power back and I'll be sure to say, uh, to share information about your other books and your website and whatnot. So people can look into the other books that you mentioned here. Excellent. Thanks so much, John.
and for anybody listening and watching, if there's anything that I might have missed due to limited time and my ability to go off on multiple tangents, <laughs> asking different things, please let me know. Reach out to me um, or reach out to Bridget. Thank you, everyone, for watching and listening. All right. Take care. Bye.